From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, August 30th. I'm Marco Werman. Egypt's president calls Syria's government an oppressive regime. His remark in Iran caused a stir because Iran is Syria's top ally. And in Syria, one of the country's top filmmakers is missing. All we know is that he was about to board a flight to Cairo from Damascus last week, but he didn't make the flight and his family doesn't know where he is. In Syria, that's usually a very ominous signal. Plus, we meet the only Afghan athlete at the Paralympics, and we hear why China isn't happy with Mitt Romney. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Egypt's new president created a diplomatic stir today. Mohamed Morsi was on the first official visit to Iran by an Egyptian leader since 1979. He was attending a summit of the Non-Aligned Movement, or NAM. Morsi has been serving as the current head of NAM and was handing the baton off to Iran. In his remarks, Morsi called the uprising in Syria, quote, a revolution against an oppressive regime. That went over like a lead balloon, considering Syria is Iran's closest Arab ally. Jane Newton-Small is diplomatic correspondent for Time magazine and is attending the NAM summit. She joins us now from Tehran. So uh, Syria's delegation walked out of the conference room, I gather, uh, when uh, the Egyptian president began speaking. What was Iran's reaction to all this? It was it was really striking that Iran's response to Morsi's comments was essentially dead silence. You saw um, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who's the Iranian president, speak after Morsi had, and basically said nothing and didn't even mention the word Syria, didn't mention anything about the crisis. And the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei spoke earlier and also did not mention Syria. So it really has become the kind of ugly stepchild of the conference, in this conference which Iran had hoped would go so well and really focus on its own nuclear program and the sanctions being held against it. And now the entire conversation has been kind of hijacked by Syria. Mm. Was it surprising that uh, Mohamed Morsi would take issue with Syria and, and by extension Iran as well? No, I mean, it's, I think Morsi really has been trying to underline to the Iranians that he isn't going to be a pawn to their messaging here. And earlier in the week, the Iranians have been pushing um, this kind of resolution as part of the declaration language, the NAM declaration from this summit, um, that would include pretty strong paragraphs on Syria being allowed to negotiate an end to this crisis by themselves. And what Morsi basically said is, I'm not going to go along with that kind of language. And, um, you know, a lot of the Sunni countries really objected to the language when it was floated, and they ultimately ended up taking out the language and putting in these three very bland paragraphs about how everybody hopes for peace in Syria. Mm. And so I think it was partly in response to that, sort of, you know, Morsi saying, 
Bashar Assad, the president of Syria, is killing Sunnis by the tens of thousands, and Iran is helping him do that. And so, he's, you know, they're not going to sort of sit idly by and let Iran use Morsi's attendance as if he was somehow supporting their role in Syria. Now, Egypt wasn't the only delegation that ruffled feathers today in Tehran. Tell us what the UN chief Ban Ki-moon said. Well, Ban Ki-moon, you know, good for him. Like, this has really been a conference where he's shown his backbone. I mean, first of all, when the United States and Israel sort of threatened him, saying, don't come to this conference, don't give validity to it, he said, no, I'm going to go. I'm going to, it's a traditional that the Secretary General go to these kinds of conferences. And then once he got here, he also sort of took the Iranians to task by getting up and giving the speech saying, I don't approve ever when countries threaten to annihilate other countries. And, you know, I also think it's irresponsible when they use bad language, such as when they deny the Holocaust, and that's historically incorrect. And that's sort of both of which were digs at Iran, which has, you know, in recent days threatened to annihilate Israel. In fact, just that morning, Khamenei had said that he wanted to annihilate Israel, and then also has denied the Holocaust a a lot of times. And so it really, um, I think, was a surprise to the Iranians who thought that, again, Ban Ki-moon would be this sort of quiet presence here, and then all of a sudden here he is criticizing them. Tell us a bit more about the non-aligned movement, uh, Jay, and how it got started. The movement started in 1961 and with 25 countries that did not want to be aligned with either the United States or the Soviet Union. And obviously that message has changed over the years with the end of the Cold War. Um, you know, and if you, it depends on what country you ask about the interpretation. And the Iranians see it as a very much an anti-American, anti-unilateral group. But others see it as, as you know, just a group of like-minded countries who are looking to develop in certain ways and trade in certain ways and, uh, and exchange ideas in certain ways. So it's an interesting movement, certainly. And it's actually been expanding and growing. There's 120 nations that are now part of it. Is the global influence meter for NAM up or down these days? Up until this point, a lot of people had sort of seen this conference as kind of going, the global influence kind of going down. It wasn't, it hasn't created a huge stir in years past, and it really hasn't created any policies or anything that has sort of changed the world, I think. I don't know if if ever. Um, So, I mean, it's the kind of thing where I don't know that it would be such a big deal if there were any other country except for Iran hosting it right at this moment. And because it's been so difficult for American journalists to get in here, and it was a great reason sort of to come and see, you know, how Iran is doing and how the city is changing and, and, um, and sort of get in and talk to people here and see, you know, what it's like here. Now, there were a number of nuclear scientists and physicists who were uh, allegedly assassinated in the last 12 months or so in Iran. Um, And apparently Iran has made a big show of this uh, at the NAM. Tell us what's going on. Yeah, there are these three cars that have been bombed, clearly. They're propped up sort of in front of the conference, and they're sort of you know, at an angle, right. like they're sort of new Maseratis being presented to the world. And it's sort of weird, because you're like, what are those beat-up cars doing here? And then you read the signs underneath them, and you realize that these are the cars that where three Iranian nuclear scientists died um, in the past year due to car bombs, which uh, Iran accuses Israel of being behind. And then sort of when you went to the press room, it was down the corridor of this enormous sort of memorial hallway of all of the Iranians killed, quote-unquote, by terrorism in the last two years. And so it was really around trying to say the message that they're a victim of terrorism and that when Americans or Israelis kill people and, and blow up people, it's all in the name of good, whereas when they perhaps do something similar, they get sanctions slapped on them. Time Magazine's Jay Newton-Small speaking with us from the Non-Aligned Movement meeting in Tehran. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marco. Back to Syria now and to the case of a Syrian filmmaker who has disappeared in the midst of all the fighting there. The filmmaker's name is Orwa Narabia. 
New Yorker staff writer Lawrence Wright has been following his case. Wright met Narabia during a trip to Syria back in 2006. What's really distinctive about him is he's an independent filmmaker in a country where the government controls almost all access to culture in any form. Uh, He really stood out because he separated himself from the government and began making his own movies and created an international film festival called Doxbox, Mm. which is the largest in the Middle East region. And uh, what's happened to him most recently? All we know is that he was about to board a flight to Cairo from Damascus last week, but he didn't make the flight, and his family doesn't know where he is. In Syria, that's usually a very ominous signal. Mm. And has Narabia produced any film recently that's particularly critical of the Syrian regime? Well, all of his films have been critical, and but not he's not an overt revolutionary. That's not how you work in Syria. In fact, you know the the weird and bizarre thing about Syrian cinema is most of it is paid for by the government. The films are often critical of the government, and they're never shown in Syria. They're shown all over the world in festivals and so on. But in Syria, the government frowns on public assembly, so they simply have shut down most of the movie theaters. Mm. There used to be 120 cinemas in Syria, and when I was there in 2006, there were only six remaining. Wow. The way that the government controls the culture in Syria by repression, but also by corralling all the artists, and this is what made Orwa so distinctive. He stood out of that system. There was practically no one like him in Syria. He was independent. He made his own movies. He made connections all around the world, and he helped Arab filmmakers get their products out to the Western world and meet each other. He was a great impresario and connector. I mean, you just made a point that I think uh, is pretty uh, key for a lot of our listeners, that over the years, the Assad regime hasn't just been vigilant about crushing public demonstrations uh, and dissent, but any kind of public gathering. Absolutely. And I think one of the reasons that the Syrian rebellion has had such a hard time cohering and finding leadership is that for decades, the Syrian regime has cut down any kind of intellectual and artistic life. So the kind of existence that Orwell is trying to propagate in Syria is exactly what the government was resisting. Now, you were in Syria in 2006. As you look back on it now, do you recall anything uh, in the sphere of Syrian art uh, and culture and film that gives you now kind of a better uh, understanding of what sparked the Syrian uprising last year? Listen, I had traveled all over the Middle East, and it's a very voluble region, as you know, but Syria was so quiet. I didn't know what kind of life they had there. And I thought, well, perhaps, you know, everybody in the, in the world knows America through its movies. Maybe I can go to Syria, watch all their movies, and meet their filmmakers and learn something about the interior life of, of Syrians. And it was revelatory. Mm. Uh, for one thing... The movies were full of abuse, physical abuse. As I learned, you know, one of the characteristics about this particular regime is how brutal it is. Everybody I met had been beaten at some point in their lives, not just by the regime. The the tyranny manifests itself in all the different institutions, even replicating itself inside the family. As one of my sources, Osama Muhammad, perhaps Syria's greatest filmmaker, said, it's hard enough to fight the dictator. What's really hard is to fight the tyrant inside ourselves. Do you have any theory, Lawrence, about why Orwa Narabia was detained? 
I think mainly his independence is what uh, it's not that he was a notable member of the revolution or that he was uh, in the street fighting. No, he was not. He was simply standing for artistic freedom in a country where that's stamped out at every opportunity. Syria will have a future one day, but it's going to be a lot darker if voices like his are suppressed and, and silenced by the regime. Lawrence Wright, staff writer with The New Yorker magazine, speaking with us about Syrian filmmaker Orwa Narabia, who went missing about a week ago. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks again. Last week, we told you about a 19th century fresco in Spain ruined by an elderly woman who tried to restore it on her own. The fresco, which portrayed Jesus, was titled Eche Homo, Behold Man. But people in Spain have taken to calling it Eche Mono, or Behold the Monkey. When a professional conservator does a treatment, he or she limits the treatment to just the lost parts. Here we have none of the original painting showing. That was the expert we spoke with last week. The story got all kinds of attention on the web, and the Spanish village of Borja, where the fresco is, got a flood of tourists. The mayor says the crowds have been overwhelming. Visitor Ramon Rubio is one of the many who says the botch restoration should not be fixed. I love it, I love it. I think what has happened is fantastic. This is almost a miracle. There was nothing left of the original picture before, and this woman, with all her good intentions, has done something very big. The town of Borja should be thankful because it has reached the whole world, and the place is full of people here only to see the painting. All that extra tourism can't be bad, given Spain's dismal economy right now. A group of professional art restorers, by the way, has taken a look at the fresco. They're expected to issue their verdict soon on the painting, now affectionately known by Spaniards as Behold the Monkey. Still to come on the program, importing hip-hop from Italy on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's day two at the Paralympic Games in London. Yesterday we told you about one of the athletes there, a swimmer from North Korea. Today we focus on an Afghan weightlifter at the Games. His name is Mohammed Fahim Rahimi. He became a weightlifter to challenge himself after losing his right leg during Afghanistan's civil war. And he's had plenty of challenges. Rahimi walks on a basic prosthetic leg given to him by the Red Cross. He has no coach and trains on his own in a Kabul gym. Tahir Kaderi of the BBC's Persian service interviewed him. He says Rahimi told him how he lost his leg 18 years ago. I mean, he told me that he was walking in Kabul and then suddenly a bomb blasted. And then he says, I, I wanted to stand up, but I didn't have any movement. And then his ankle comes and takes him to the hospital. And then he was hospitalized for two months. And then after that, because he was a disabled person, he was very isolated and depressed. And then he thought of starting something to engage into the society. Mm. So he started powerlifting then. So he's been powerlifting for a while. Has he been involved in any other international competition? Yes, he made it to Beijing as well, but he couldn't make it because during the very first minutes, there was a foul or something. That was the first time that Afghanistan had an athlete in the Paralympic Games. Wow. So Rahimi's got very little funding, if any at all. What does that mean for his training? 
Oh, that's really true because the budget for the Paralympics Committee for three months is $6,000, from which they have to pay $20 per month as monthly wage for 90 athletes that they have got. And um, Fahim Rahimi is a half-day minicab driver in Kabul from where he earns $10 per day and then half-day goes and trains in the Paralympics. So really his funding is from what he earns as a driver. Right. And I gather the gym where he trains in Kabul, I mean, it it costs something, but he's getting it for free. Yeah, that's true. But it's quite hard for him as well because he's feeding also, you know, his family. So in Kabul, uh, there are thousands of people who were injured and maimed by landmines uh, over the years, and they've got no prosthetics and their care is minimal. Tell us more about the circumstances of of all these disabled people. The life for the disabled in Afghanistan, you can only come to understand the real situation once you go and see it with your eyes. Normally, they are called the burdens of the society because they are not like engaging in the society and you often don't see them or you see them as beggars on the streets because there are no facilities for them like ramps or wheelchairs or lifts in the country. And then the Official statistics says that there could be like 800,000 disabled in the country. However, the unconfirmed statistics, you know, suggest that there could be 2 million people left from the, you know, civil war and then the recent war as well. You know, there were a couple of other athletes who were competent. There was an 18-year-old boy who had lost his leg only nine years ago when he was walking near Kabul airport. Then he was taken to the United States by an NGO and he went under an operation. And when he came back, he came back as a swimmer and a sprinter. Mm. And he was quite competent and everyone was hopeful that he would make it. But because the head of the Paralympics is a former jihadi commander, he was shot at by his enemies and then he was hospitalized and, you know, being operated abroad. So there wasn't anyone to look after these guys to send them for qualification. So therefore, they only brought Rahimi here. Wow, it sounds chaotic. Yeah, yeah, it certainly does. So now Fahim Rahimi is in London. Has he competed in any weightlifting events yet? No, he will be competing on 4th of September and he's quite hopeful. He was telling me that he really wants to win a medal so that he can change the attitude and the stigma in the country towards the disabled. And what uh, what does his competition look like? What are the, his chances of meddling? Uh, it's quite a big game for him and also a very big challenge, really, because he hasn't been, I mean, he has been exercising over the last few years, but not really professionally. Like, for example, the, the Afghan taekwondo athlete who won a bronze medal, he was like, you know, going to Korea for his exercises while Fahim Rahimi has been exercising only in Kabul and on and off. So his chances are not so much. If we look back to Beijing, you know, he was not qualified even within the preliminary stages of the game because mm. he couldn't, you know, lift the weight. So the chances are less, but still he thinks that his presence is a great chance for the disabled to prove that the disabled also can do something and so that the government, he can draw the attention of the government towards the disabled by winning a medal. Tahir Kaderi with the BBC Persian Service in London. Thank you very much. Thank you. Visit our website to find out more amazing stories about some of the athletes at the Paralympic Games. Our partners at WGBH launched a special online project called Medal Quest, featuring video, blogs, and more from London. We have a link at theworld.org. Sweden Spy Agency, yes, they do have one, has gotten itself wrapped up in a scandal that might make even James Bond blush. 
News emerged this week that the agency called Sapo spent $800,000 on a Bond-themed party last year. It was complete with casino tables, a big band, and a gala dinner. That's been enough to raise a few eyebrows, Roger Moore style, of course. Oliver G. is a reporter with Sweden's English-language website, thelocal.se. Oliver, just how extravagant was this party? For a security service party, I think it was pretty extravagant. Uh, as you said, there was the blackjack tables and uh, the dancing. In fact, there was also silhouette dancing in, to the tune of James Bond music. So mm. it sounded like it was a pretty, uh, pretty big affair indeed. Now, I mean, this is a spy agency. They're supposed to be discreet. Why would uh, they hold such a large and lavish party? The current head of SAPO has said that uh, it was an extraordinary year for the organization. We know there were bug- budget cuts and... Uh, There was also a suicide bombing in Stockholm, which put some increased pressure on the organization. Mm. And they've they've claimed that they needed to get rid of some of the stress. And that's why they needed the big event, apparently. Right. Well, Swedes have the reputation of being a pretty modest bunch of people. How has the public reacted to uh, the revelations of this crazy party? Uh, Well, I think people are pretty amazed by the kind of figures involved Considering there were a thousand people uh, invited to the event and it cost eight hundred thousand American dollars of taxpayers' money, people seem pretty riled up about it. And the whole James Bond theme is kind of excruciating as well for them if you consider they're a secret service. So it unsurprisingly it opens them up to ridicule. Now, as I understand it, one thing that really rankled the Swedish government about the party is that it was not put out to tender. In other words, no one was allowed to bid to be the party organizer. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And uh, furthermore, what what riled up people uh, was when the news came out that they'd made a claim for too much uh, of the added tax back. So they'd made a claim that was almost one million Swedish krona. And and they had to pay a large percentage of that back in compensation, which is something that really struck a chord with the Swedish public that they would make such a claim. Now, we here in the United States got our first uh, taste of the Swedish spy service, uh, Sapo, and the girl with the dragon tattoo novels. Uh, In those works of fiction, as you may recall, Sapo was covering up the presence of a dangerous uh, Eastern European killer and gangster in their midst. This is a big party. What is Sapo's reputation among Swedes? Is it somewhere between the the spies and uh, the party throwers? In fact, Sapo has got a pretty good uh, reputation among Swedes. They're a fairly open organization, and in recent years, they've, uh, they've even been making efforts to be more open. So they have got a pretty good reputation, to be honest. Oliver G., a reporter with Sweden's English-language website, thelocal.se. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, an American college student who spent her summer singing with a Peking opera. Slowly but surely, and with the great patience of a fabulous teacher, slowly but surely I got it. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org.
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Mitt Romney's speech to the party faithful tonight is being seen as the most important so far in his bid to be president. It will undoubtedly be a rousing end to the Republican National Convention. So today, how the rest of the world is viewing the GOP and Romney as a possible future president. Laure Mandeville is Washington correspondent for France's right-leaning paper, Le Figaro. We've also got with us Swedish journalist Martin Gellin. He's just released a book called American Conservatives. Both of them are in Tampa covering the convention. Now, you're both outsiders in a way to this political drama. The Democrats are in Charlotte next week. What do you both make of these political conventions? I'll start with Laure. It's my first political convention, so it's quite exciting. I must say it's, it's interesting to have a, a sense of, of what people have in mind uh, you know, the, in the conservative movement. Martin Gellin, so conventions like this, you see it as political a policy meetup or is it more just drama? I, I think it's a pretty good way to find out the mood of the conservative movement. For example, four years ago at the Republican convention, they had nominated John McCain, who was considered a moderate conservative. But the general mood of the convention was much more populist, and, and you could sort of get a sense of the way the party was moving you know, further to the right uh, four years ago, even though McCain didn't represent that. What do you find distinctive about the right wing in America as opposed to the right wing in, in France and Europe? As a person like myself, you know, who is from France, the the motto in terms of, you know, uh, anti-government approach and uh, the necessity to boost the private sector is much more pronounced in the U.S. I mean, they want to go back to a, a sort of limited government uh, and a, a Reagan type of program. That's what I feel. You're hearing things here all the time. I've seen all these different uh, speakers all talking about, you know, uh, we have to do it on our own. Government is evil. It's uh, Everything should be, you know, on our own forces. This is the DNA of our country. This is the American way. I mean, all that you would never hear in France. I mean, totally different approach on this particular question. Concerning the question of immigration, and I think it's, there are similarities, actually, between the approaches, I think, of the conservatives in France and the, in the U.S., you know, which is the question of uh, how to, to try to uh, slow it, if not stop it. Mm. And um, the abortion question is absolutely uh, strike, in striking difference. There is no such debate in France. Not even among conservatives? Have, no, there isn't. Now, Martin, you spent two years with uh, conservatives here in the U.S. for your book, American Conservatives, which is out in in Sweden now. What had you concluded in that book, and is all that consistent with what you're seeing in Tampa? One of my conclusions is that the the Republicans decided after after the Bush years, they they all pretty much agreed that uh, that W. Bush was a failure, and, and they decided that his main problem was that he wasn't conservative enough. So they so they have moved uh, uh, to a more conservative position, especially when it comes to talking about small government and, and cutting welfare programs. So that's been a sort of gradual process since, since uh, 2008. I mean, that's uh, what you said earlier is kind of what Law was saying about the resurgence of the name of Ronald Reagan at the convention. Um, what about the makeup of the GOP? I mean, you look in the audience. Uh, I looked in the audience on TV, uh, the people in the convention center, and it has to be said it's overwhelmingly white. What, what do you guys see when you look out on the sea of faces at the GOP convention? Yeah, it is a very white convention. They have they have tried to, to make it look less white by 
bring, for example, the the Puerto Rican uh, delegation is uh, has a centered, you know, seat on the convention floor. But uh, it's hard to hide the fact that the Republican Party is increasingly the party of of uh, white Americans. Yeah, it is actually a, a pretty white audience uh, at the convention. I mean, you bump sometimes into a black delegate or a Latino one, but basically, yes, this is mainly a, a white audience. You know, I, I got to say, at this uh, American political convention, there's little foreign policy on the agenda. Is it off-putting for either of you, Law or Martin, that in a country that's already got a reputation of being kind of insular, that the rest of the world isn't on the radar screen at this big kind of talk fest? Both uh, John McCain and, and Condoleezza Rice uh, sort of struggled in their speeches here to, to attack Obama on foreign policy. And I, I think it reflects that... Obama has, in some aspects, been pretty successful on foreign policy. He's had a much more aggressive foreign policy than a lot of people expected him to. So there's not a lot of room for Republicans to attack him. And, Lo, what do you think? Is it just kind of odd as a foreigner to be in this place that, uh, you know, the world power and nobody's talking about the rest of the world? I think it really is a reflection of what is going on in America, where both in the uh, Democratic Party and in the Republican Party, there is this really obsessive focus on the reconstruction of the nation building of America. I think Americans are fed up with rebuilding the world, you know, and fighting uh, distant wars. But of course, for us, it's a bit frustrating to see this uh, absence of foreign policy, uh, both Obama and, and the Republicans. Well, we'll see what else they say about foreign policy next week in Charlotte, the Democrats, that is. Laure Mandeville is with the French newspaper Le Figaro. Swedish journalist Martin Gellin is the author of the just-published American Conservatives. Thank you both very much indeed for your time and your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. So let's dig in on one issue for the GOP that's causing a stir many thousands of miles from Tampa. Getting tough with China has almost been a mantra of Mitt Romney's campaign. He's pledged, if elected, to brand China a currency manipulator on his first day in office. He's also promised to curb China's rise as a regional superpower, and he's hammered President Obama for declining to sell F-16 fighter jets to Taiwan. Well, Beijing has had enough. Yesterday, China's official news agency, Xinhua, criticized Romney for what it calls a blame China game. The world's China correspondent Mary Kay Magstad joins us now. Mary Kay, American presidential candidates usually beat up on China during campaigns. What's actually different about what Romney is saying? I'm not sure that there is that much different about what Romney is saying. If you go back, say, 20 years, even to the Clinton campaign, um, Bill Clinton was saying that he was going to get tough on China. He also said that China uh, was had unfair trade practices, was manipulating its currency, that he was going to get tough. Well, he sent Warren Christopher in. Um, not much happened. And within uh, a year or two of his presidency, he recognized that it's all much more complicated than the U.S. saying, look, China, you're going to get in line. It's a complicated relationship. It's an important relationship. It's multifaceted. And a lot of things need to be balanced. And president after president has recognized this after they've been in office for a while. But now China has hit back verbally with the Xinhua news agency using the blame China game line. Is it unusual for China to react in such a way? It's actually not that unusual. Um, in fact, what's interesting is that I think over time, the Chinese leadership and the official Chinese media have become more sophisticated in how they look at the rhetoric that's thrown around during a U.S. presidential campaign. I think it, they used to take it very personally and be offended and affronted by it. 
And over the last few months, they've basically sat back and watched. Um, they've spoken up now related to Taiwan in particular. I mean, they, they've said that, look, you know, when it comes to being labeled a currency manipulator, um, the Chinese find this a distortion of facts. But uh, as the Xinhua story said, when it comes to Taiwan, you're treading on dangerous territory if you're starting to say, okay, we're going to give Taiwan all the military equipment it needs because this is one of China's core interests. That's not new. China's been saying this over and over again. It said it to President Obama when he did sell some military equipment to Taiwan, just not everything they wanted. How concerned is China sincerely if there were to be a President Romney? What would that actually mean to China? Well, this is an interesting question because over time, the Chinese have actually tended to favor Republican candidates. They think that the Republican candidates are more free market, are less likely to speak up on behalf of U.S. labor. What they found with President Obama was that actually in the first year of his presidency, he tried to be pretty cooperative. He tried to engage China on multiple fronts. Uh, and after finding that the Chinese were seeing that as, as a sign of weakness, he actually firmed up and has been respectful but firm in his approach to China. And the conversations of different types have continued. The discussions that are part of a very complex U.S.-China relationship have continued. But I think the Chinese have gotten the message that they can't push President Obama around as, as much as they perhaps initially thought they might be able to. This is also part of a much bigger picture, which is that over the last four to five years, China has started to sort of feel that it is this ascendant power, that the U.S. is on the decline, and that perhaps China could speed up the process by just sort of kicking the U.S. aside. What they're finding now is their own economy slows, and as the U.S. proves to be a little more resilient than they expected, particularly in its presence in Asia, is, huh, we need to manage this a little bit differently. That's going to be the same whether it's President Obama staying in office or whether Mitt Romney becomes president. I think if Mitt Romney were to make good on his promise to label China a currency manipulator on day one when he's in office, if he did sell Taiwan uh, more advanced weapons systems, he would get immediate and considerable pushback from China, and it wouldn't necessarily be in the best interests of the United States. The world's China correspondent, Mary Kay Magstad, thank you very much. Thank you, Marco. As Europe's economic crisis drags on, funding for the arts in many countries is drying up. That's certainly the case in Portugal. Artists there are in survival mode and testing new ways to keep themselves going. Reporter Monica Campbell has one artist story. Recently in Lisbon, Luis Tinoco, a well-known classical composer, was in his studio. It's filled with large composition books of minute penciled-in notations symphonies inspired by poets like Walt Whitman and Portugal's Fernando Pessoa. Here's a sample. This piece took me, I would say, about four or five months to write, because I like to, to think things over and over and uh, rewrite, and, and uh, it's uh, really hard work. But as Tinoco prepared his first CD, Portugal's economy crashed hard. Key art supporters, including the culture ministry, dissolved. Major foundations and commissioners retreated. It was always a mission impossible. All the doors closing. Um, I tried private companies. I tried state funding. I was really in a big stress and waking up, waking up in the middle of the night, you know. <laughs> 
Refusing to quit, Tinoco, like other artists here, improvised. In his case, he tested Portugal's first ever internet crowdfunding company to raise the final 3,000 euros needed to finish his orchestral work. It worked. In 30 days, Tinoco reached and surpassed his fundraising goal. But he was nervous, too. While Kickstarter made crowdfunding mainstream in the U.S., it's still new to Portugal. That's because artists here are used to institutional funding. Panhandling directly from the public is unheard of. I was a bit fearful because when you ask the public to be involved in a process like this, if that fails, you are also failing in front of the public. Tinoco did get some pushback. Fellow composers feared that Kickstarter-style funding would let the government off the hook. Perhaps, but Tinoco and others argue that they need money now and that the government doesn't have it in this weak economy. Welcome. This is PPL Crowdfunding Portugal, and this is our little garage. That's Paulo Pereira, co-founder of PPL, Portugal's first crowdfunding company. It's tiny, in an office at a Lisbon Business University, but it met its first-year goal of raising 73,000 euros for projects, including Luis Tinoco's CD. What happens as well is that government, and, and namely in this, in this current day and age, they don't have unlimited funds and they don't have the ability to fund every single piece of work that is out there. Pereira says investments have come in from Australia, Asia, the U.S., Portugal, and elsewhere. He admits that this may sound run-of-the-mill to Americans, but the Portuguese are still pretty wary of giving online. People had some skepticism, for example, regarding online payments. And so these things take a little longer to catch on. You need to build a lot of credibility on a platform like ours before people really start understanding they can trust us, the projects are good. Composer Luis Tinoco also talks about his risks. If his CD fails, the public will unlikely fund him again. And meantime, overall economic uncertainty lingers. Of course, we all try to think positive, and uh, there is an expectation that this is... uh, kind of a journey of two, three, four years that we need to go through and uh, something might start uh, refreshing and recovering. The worst thing is that you don't know how more serious is it going to get. Grim talk from an artist determined to survive, seek out alternatives and resist heading for the exits. For The World, I'm Monica Campbell, Lisbon. We have a couple of compositions that are part of Luis Tinoco's crowdfunding project. You can listen and share at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is supported by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. Information at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. For today's GeoQuiz, we're headed for a city of over 20 million people. It's home to one of China's most famous soccer teams, the Shenhua. The city's distinctive Oriental Pearl Tower looks out over a crowded waterfront. This global city straddles the Wangpu River. The east side is a landscape of modern skyscrapers and high-rise condos. West of the river, you'll find early 20th century European architecture. So what's the name of this diverse city where east meets west? For the answer, we're going to turn to the world's intern, Angela Sun. She's been hard at work here in the newsroom this summer. But before she heads back to Tufts University to hit the books, we gave her one last assignment. 
Interning at The World, I've had the chance to learn from producers and reporters here, and even try my hand at doing some stories. The world's curiosity for all things international is contagious. Sitting here in our Boston studios, I couldn't help but wonder what some of my friends who went abroad this summer did. So I called up some of my good friends from Tufts and took a kind of audio carpet ride around the world, touching down first in Shanghai, China, the answer to today's GeoQuiz. Hi, my name is Erica O'Connor. I came to Shanghai a month ago to participate in an international Beijing opera workshop at the Shanghai Theater Academy. From someone who actually had not had any singing background, this was <laughs> quite a challenge. Beijing opera singing is meant to carry out in a, a large audience before you had microphones, so it's a very piercing high sound. My opinion, it's it's beautiful, but it might be an acquired taste. <laughs> I've heard it described as、uh, cats dying. <laughs> But to me, it's it's really something. It's unlike anything that you hear in regular everyday speech. After my first day, I was just I had all my hopes sort of lost. I was <laughs> kind of thinking, "Oh my God, what was I thinking <laughs> that I could learn to sing this?" But then, slowly but surely, and with the great patience of a fabulous teacher, slowly but surely, I got it. Hi, my name is Nishant Sahar, and this summer I had an internship in Kashmir, India, at an NGO that provides free mental health counseling to victims of conflict-related disorders. Getting off of the plane was a very interesting experience, and it essentially describes the whole experience I had in Kashmir. It was very paradoxical. I got off the plane, and in the distance you can see huge, tall mountains. You know, it's a beautiful sky, and then you leave the airport, and all of a sudden you just start seeing soldiers everywhere. I had never seen so many beautiful mountains and so many machine guns together in one day in my life. Towards the end of my stay, I was actually able to meet、uh, someone who had spent the last 16 years in jail. This is a former militant in jail for allegedly the murder of over 20 innocent Hindus in the early 90s. It was just very shocking to hear someone who had been essentially trained to kill innocent people. Almost when he was the same age as me, and for me that was just very a concept, a notion that was very hard to get my mind around. That was just kind of a surreal experience. I'm Natalie Wygand, and this summer I took a very cool trip to Ireland with my family. Me, my first cousins, my siblings, my second cousins, my first cousins once removed, and my you know, <laughs> my mom's side of the family is from the Donovan clan. My great uncle, my grandpa's brother, had been to Castle Donovan, and that was the seat of our family until the 17th century. It was sort of like this legend in our family because he was the only one, really, I think, who had ever seen the castle, and he had, you know, one picture of it. Finally, we all got to go see it. It's, you know, still there, but it's sort of a fallen-down tower, basically, that's left. I, I didn't realize it would be how exciting it would be and how much more Irish I would feel. Because I finally had like a like a visual, you know, of what their life would have been like, and been to the the places that our old family would have walked around, and it was like reconnecting with our roots made us feel more like a clan, you know. 
A busy and fascinating summer that was college student and Donovan clan member Natalie Weigand. We also heard from Nishant Saharan in Kashmir and Erica O'Connor in Shanghai. Shanghai being the answer to our geo-quiz today. The world's intern, Angela Sun, produced that eye and ear opening story. Angela, thank you so much. No problem. Thanks. Finally today, Italian rapper Giovanotti has been touring the U.S. this summer. The tour coincides with a new CD of Giovanotti's music that's just come out. The world's William Troop has given it a listen. In Italy, Giovanotti has been pumping out the records and the hits since the late 1980s. He was an early convert to the sound pioneered by the Sugar Hill Gang. In fact, Giovanotti says one of his earliest inspirations was their 1979 hit, Rapper's Delight. You can hear those roots in this track called Scappa con me. Italians love the stuff, but despite his wild success in Europe, Giovanotti has never had an album officially released here in the U.S. until now. The new CD, Italia 1988-2012, is a collection of songs spanning his career. Giovanotti, whose real name is Lorenzo Cherubini, has never been purely a rapper in the American sense of the term. He's more like a hip urban poet with a beat, more like Lou Reed than Lil Wayne. And his beat can be pretty relentless. That's one of the newer songs in the CD. It's about how modern technology intrudes on our privacy, but at the same time gives us freedom. But never mind the lyrics. It's the kind of Giovanotti song you can groove to, even if you don't understand Italian. In recent years, Giovanotti has been coming to the United States more and more, especially to New York, a city he says fascinates and inspires him. For the new CD, the Italian rapper recorded a brand new song in English, a mellower track professing his affection for the Big Apple. In New York I found Rome, I found Milan, I found Paris. New York is made of Buenos Aires, Istanbul, Venice, Grandmaster Flash, Lou Reed, Kittering, Beastie Boys. I wanna wake up in the city with Frankie and his voice. He's not kidding about waking up in New York. Giovanotti says he's moving there this fall, and he'll be touring the U.S. again in October. So if you don't know Giovanotti yet, get ready to hear a lot about him, because he's moving in. For The World, I'm William Troop. This land is your land, from New Zealand to Sicily. Home is where the heart is, and I keep my heart with me. wonder what Frankie he's talking about. You can see a video of Giovanotti performing and talking about his new CD at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.